The following sermon is from Christ Church Port Orange. For more information, find us online at joinwithjesus.org. Thanks for listening. But this morning, uh, the, the Holy Spirit was really hovering over some particular uh, English words as I was reading, and so I just want to talk to you this morning uh, about holy boldness. Somebody say holy boldness. Holy boldness. And I want to back us up from what Pastor Rich brought last week in the Josiah story to the story of Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 17. And I want to show you how this word um, courage stood out to me, both in the Jehoshaphat story and also in the book of Ezra. And then I want to point out to you what God's purpose is for you and give you an opportunity to, to yield your heart to him. And so look at 2 Chronicles chapter 17 with me, starting in verse 1. We're going to read 1 to 6 and then I'll pray. Here's what it says. Jehoshaphat, his son, Asa's son, reigned in his place and strengthened himself against Israel. There had been a, a civil war lingering for four kings here. He placed forces in all the fortified cities of Judah and set garrisons in the land of Judah in the cities of Ephraim that Asa, his father, had captured. So he expanded his territory slightly and strengthening himself on his northern border. Verse 3. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the earlier ways of his father David. He did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments and not according to the practices of Israel, that apostate northern kingdom of ten tribes. Therefore, the Lord established the kingdom in his hand and all Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat, and he had great riches and honor. And look at verse 6. His heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord, and furthermore, he took the high places and the Asherim out of Judah. God, we thank you for your word that's been read in our hearing and the many verses that we are going to hear read this morning. And we pray that as they are alive, inspired, and attended by the power of your Holy Spirit, that these words would not fall on deaf ears, but on open hearts. God, I pray that as we study the history of your people Israel and the story that leads to Jesus and ultimately is fulfilled in what you are doing right now in this generation, in the power of the risen King Jesus, and under the ministry of your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that we would find our place in your story, and that we would come to walk in your purposes for us as we yield our hearts to you in our entirety. Speak to us, Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Jehoshaphat was one of the good kings of the many bad kings of both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, which had separated after the death of Solomon into a civil war and ultimately became two separate nations that we tracked through the books of First and Second Kings. First and Second Chronicles go back to tell not only the king's stories, but the king's story set in the larger narrative of the history of Israel and is actually the last book 
chronologically of the Old Testament. It's placed here in order so you can see uh, where it fits into the overall storyline, but that's not where it originally existed. And so as we read First and Second Chronicles, we get a picture of how God was working through the kings and the kings of the southern kingdom of Judah are featured there with only information about the northern kingdom included as it relates to the southern kingdom. And so Jehoshaphat's story is filled out for us in this version of his reign that was different from the one that we read in Kings. And Jehoshaphat here is, is um, held out for us as of a particular virtue. And that virtue that he has is courage, is courage. Jehoshaphat, like all figures in the Old Testament, was not without his problems. And the main issue that he had was he had an impulse to do what he thought was a good thing, but was not a God thing. He wanted in his generation to reunify the southern and northern kingdoms of Israel and Judah into one nation. And so he went into a marriage alliance with the daughter of the evil king of Israel, Ahab, and also sought in the later parts of his reign to work alongside of Ahab's son in order to put together some ships that would sail to Tarshish and bring back gold in a way to try to prosper both nations. And he was trying to do what he thought was a good thing, but the judgment of God was against the evil kings of Israel, and that was not a thing that God wanted him to do. And ultimately, uh, the scriptures condemn him for those actions. Second Chronicles 18, one to three says, Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor, and he made a marriage alliance with Ahab, after some years, he went down to Ahab in Samaria. Ahab killed an abundance of sheep and oxen for him and for the people who were with him and induced him to go up against Ramoth Gilead. Ahab, king of Israel, said to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, will you go with me to Ramoth Gilead? And he answered, I am as you are, my people as your people. We will be with you in a war. And you'll read the story. Uh, God sovereignly intervenes to bring about Ahab's death, even though Ahab is pretending to be a soldier and making Jehoshaphat the target as he's dressed in the king's clothing and a random arrow is shot by a random soldier and it randomly hits Ahab right in the random spot that could lead to his death. And you see, oh, God is very much in control and nothing you do can thwart his purposes. Somebody say amen. And so Jehoshaphat, through his experience, had come to encounter the purpose of God and the prevailing purposes of God. He instituted reforms throughout his kingdom, and he did things that no other king had done to date, namely to take down the high places where people were kind of free to worship how they wanted and also who they wanted. And so while many faithful Jews did worship God in those high places, it was also unregulated and unoverseen. And so lots of uh, false worship took place in those places, but most kings wouldn't take those places down because it would be very unpopular, but Jehoshaphat did exactly that. And so he, he worked really hard to bring justice, and one of the things we, we hear him telling those that he put in charge of things was to have integrity and to deal courageously, and so he had courage, and he extended that courage to those he led. But the story that I want to talk to you about is when the courage of Je Jehoshaphat became Necessary, And so we get to Second Chronicles in chapter 20, and this particular story really stirred in my spirit, and I believe the Lord wants to speak to somebody today from this story. Second Chronicles 21 to 4. This is during the reign of Jehoshaphat. Here's what it says. After this, after he had done all these reforms and got these people to deal courageously and with integrity, after this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Meunites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. So three foreign opposing nations come together to attack Judah. 
Verse two, some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. And behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, and Gedi. And if you don't know your ancient Near Eastern geography, you're like, I don't know European geography. I don't know what state is next to Texas. That's fine. This means that they are about a day's march away. So they are close. That's what's being said here. Verse three. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And I love that verse three tells us, then Jehoshaphat was afraid. We're told in chapter 17 that Jehoshaphat was courageous And we're told in chapter 20 that he was afraid. And I think it's worth noting that being courageous does not mean you are not afraid. And in fact, the backdrop for courage is in fact fear. Do you know that? If you are not afraid, you are not courageous. You are crazy. (laughs) Have you ever met a Marine? Any of you? You're like, so courageous. No, crazy. Not, Not even a little afraid. Like, that's the difference. And so this is for regular people. And I want to I push this on you for a second because a lot of times when we face difficult circumstances and we feel fear, we can feel weak. But that weakness is not found in fear. There's lots of things to be afraid of. Do you know that? I've learned this because I'm a touch crazy. I don't fear a lot of the things that I should fear. And God has sovereignly paired me with a woman who has great wisdom and knows the things that I and our children ought to be afraid of. And so I've learned the things to be afraid of. And nothing increases your level of fear like having children either, does it? You start thinking about your early, your early days and the things that you did and the decisions that you made. And then you have children and something like, you become like instantly aware of your mortality and the responsibility you have to help these humans thrive and all that kind of stuff that never goes away. And, and so there's a lot of anxiety and fear that we experience. And so this virtue that's held out for us in this Jehoshaphat story does not mean that you're not afraid. And so feeling fear is not a problem. It's what you do when you are afraid that reveals whether you are courageous. And this virtue of courage that Jehoshaphat had caused him to seek the Lord, not to seek the false gods. And while in the ancient Near East, that meant the ashram and the Baals and the fertility gods and the gods of war. And for us today, it is It is to look at the markets, the economy, the future, our finances, our strength, our ability, our wisdom, our degrees, our opportunities, our LinkedIn profile. We go right to how am I going to solve this problem? And that, brothers and sisters, is idolatry. And while courage draws us to say, in this situation where I am facing legitimate attack and I am afraid, I am going to set my face towards the Lord and I'm going to seek him. And this is what Jehoshaphat is celebrated for. So he gathers everyone together and in chapter 20, verses five to 12, he prays this prayer. Read it with me. Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. He said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And so he reminds God of who he is. Sometimes we got to remind God of who he is. Really, it's for our sake, isn't it? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. These guys report to you. 
In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you. For your name is in this house and cry out to you in our affliction and you will hear and save. And now behold, and look how he gets specific. The men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, because these were the descendants of Esau and under the blessing of God, the Edomites, when they came from the land of Egypt and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. And take these words home with you today. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I love that. That is courage. That is courage. In a world where it is seen as a virtue to have a plan, to be the person who knows what to do, Jehoshaphat's courage says, I don't know what to do, but I know whom I serve. And so I'm reminding you of what you have done and what you have said and who you have called me to be. And I'm standing in your promises despite what is in front of me. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Meanwhile, verse 13, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. So here's everybody gathered. And these are the people that soldiers fight for, by the way, isn't it? You think you're about to go into battle and who are you fighting for? Maybe your brother in arms next to you, but it's for your wife who's back home, vulnerable, and your children who are waiting for you to return. And so they are all standing here together with their little ones and their wives and their children. And look at verse 14. And the spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaniah, the son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, Thus says the Lord to you. And so here comes the prophetic word. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde for the battle is not yours, but God's. Isn't that the best news you could hear? Woo! This is not on you. Verse 16. Tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz, you will find them at the end of the valley east of the wilderness of Jeruel. And so he gets the GPS coordinates of where they're going to be ready to attack. But listen, you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O oh, Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid. And do not be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them and the Lord will be with you. Isn't that a good word? Isn't that a good word? 
And so they were strengthened greatly by the prophetic word as God is speaking. He stirred his spirit, one of the priests. Verse 18 says, Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head and with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korhites stood up to praise the Lord. This is the worship team, by the way the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with his people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. How would you like that if you were on the worship team? Guess what? You guys are out front. We'll be right behind you with swords. You take your bass guitar. But they knew the battle is the Lord's. Like, we're not going to use these swords today. And so they were led by the singers who sang this song, give thanks to the Lord, his steadfast love endures forever. Their confidence was in the purpose of God and the power of God and in the word of God. And this is the courage that God is after every single one of us to seek in our generation, to seek him when we are afraid and to listen to his word and to believe in the Lord our God and he will establish you. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who had come against Judah so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. Infighting. It's devilish, isn't it? God just allows them to destroy one another. And it says that they destroyed one another completely. They all helped to destroy one another. It says, when they came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde and behold, there were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. You know, it makes me wonder, like, what was that last guy? Was he, did, he, did he just like look around and realize he was the last one and ah, run off? I don't know. Did two guys kill each other at the last minute? Whatever it was. But they arrive and there's nothing but defeat before they've even arrived. And God had fought for them. And then it says, when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found among them in great numbers goods, clothing, precious things, which they took for themselves until they could carry no more. They were three days in taking the spoil. It was so much. On the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Barakah, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the valley of Barakah, which in Hebrew is the valley of blessing to this day. Then they returned every man of Judah and Jerusalem and Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. And they came to Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets to the house of the Lord. And the fear of God came on all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard that the Lord fought against the enemies of Israel, so that the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest all around. How many of you guys would like some rest all around? <laughs> because the fear of the Lord spreads against your enemies. Now draw your attention to the courage of Jehoshaphat, the impossible situation he was in, his disposition to seek the Lord and to stand fast in what God had said despite 
what was in front of him. And he received the word of the Lord and in obedience believed God and moved forward. And in our reading, we then skipped ahead because Chronicles finishes up the entire history of Israel up to the exile and beyond. And so the next book we got was Ezra. And Ezra is a little tricky because Ezra's got a bunch of genealogies and lists of people and numbers. And you go, I feel like I'm reading the Hebrew phone book. No, thank you. But buried inside this beautiful book, hundreds of years after the northern kingdom of Israel was sieged and the people of Israel exiled by the Assyrians in 722 BC. And then in 586, the Babylonians came, did the same thing to the faithless of Judah and carried them off. And so the people who are then replanted in this area are not Jews, but they're under a curse. And so they bring some priests back to teach them how to honor the God of Israel. And this is where the Samaritans come from that we get to in the New Testament. They're acting like Jews, but they're not Jews. And so they're rejected by the Jews and there's animosity between them. And so all of these things take place. The prophet Jeremiah prophesies that this exile is only gonna last for 70 years. And then God is gonna raise up a Messiah, a Messiah named Cyrus, who's gonna be a Persian. And he is not only gonna send the Jews back to Israel, but he's gonna outfit them with all of the wealth that they need to rebuild the foundation, rebuild the temple, and to completely fully furnish it. And that in fact does take place. And Cyrus is raised up and he gives this edict. He was one of the first emperors that the world has ever seen. He was a Persian. He was likely born in modern day Iran. And he had the largest kingdom the world had ever known at that point. And one of the ways he grew so large in his empire was to establish the religious traditions of the people he overtook and then to oversee them or to oppress them, much like Rome did, much like Alexander the Great did before, before Rome. And so this is what he did. And in order to do this, he decided he was gonna rebuild the temple of the great God in Israel, having heard about Solomon. And Ezra tells us the story of how this happens and how they faced opposition. And after the foundation was laid and there was opposition and they stopped building and the prophet Haggai spoke and the people got back to it after 10 years and they rebuilt the temple. And then Ezra is called by God to go and to bring all of the goods out of Babylon and back to the temple and to make this journey, um, <clears throat> this weeks long journey with all of this wealth. And in chapter seven, uh, we're introduced to Ezra. And I don't want to read all as much in Ezra as I did in Second Chronicles, but I do want to point out to you in Ezra 7, 1 to 6, it says, now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, who, who came after Cyrus and before Darius, king of Persia, Ezra, and I'll skip all the sons of, he was a descendant of Aaron, that's where that's going. It says, this Ezra went up in verse six from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord, his God was on him. And so you get, the next section is the copy of the letter that Artaxerxes wrote that gives Ezra the authority to do what he's doing. And in chapter seven and verse 27, Ezra says, blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such things as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. And look, here's that word again. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. And then you get 20 verses of a list of all the people and all the prosperity and the wealth and the riches that they were taking to beautify the temple. And then in chapter eight and verse 21, it says, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before God to seek him, to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. 
For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is good, is for good on all who seek him and the power of his wrath against all who forsake him. He told the king, God is for us. No one can stand against us. And then he took millions of dollars in cash and started down a treacherous road filled with bandits. And you know what he felt? Afraid. Isn't he a regular person just like us? He's recognizing he is susceptible to what commonly befell people on this journey, and that was to be robbed, attacked, assaulted, and ripped off. And so he's coming here to seek the Lord, to humble himself. And it says in verse 23, so we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. He goes on to list all the people that he entrusted with all of the money that they were going to take and all the wealth and all the gold and all the, all the fixtures that were going to go into the temple to beautify it. And in verse 31, it says, then we departed from the river Ahava on the 12th day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. Listen to this very simple one sentence. The hand of our God was on us and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. I would like to hear the long version of that story. Anybody else? I'm like, Ezra, you got all these details about what you brought? You can't tell us what happened on the journey and how God delivered you? Someday I'll ask him. So here, here's what I want to point out to you. Jehoshaphat faces these three nations coming against him. He reminds God of his promise. He stands firm in it and he says, we do not know what to do but our eyes are on you. Ezra, four centuries later, after God has worked out impossible details that no one could have imagined, even though God had prophesied them, they came to pass, and all these miracles had taken place. Ezra's still afraid and legitimately afraid. And so what does he do? He seeks the Lord, and he puts on courage, and they move in obedience, and God intervenes to bless both times. And I want to point out this to you, but I also want to I want to mention a disparity because we can read the Old Testament and we can uh, read church history. We can, we can read books by great people, missionaries and preachers and pastors and leaders. And we can, we can get this picture that yes, God does those things. And yes, there are important people, but I am just a regular old person. I am not Jehoshaphat. I'm not a king. I'm not a prophet. I'm not a priest. I'm not a person of prominence. I'm just Joe Schmo or Josephina Schmo. And here's what I'm going to point out to you. The reason the Old Testament chronicles these particular people in this, these particular positions is because God himself was going to fulfill the purposes in each of these roles. And so we follow the kings because Jesus is our king. Somebody say amen. And we follow the lineage of priests because Jesus becomes for us our once for all high priests. Amen. And we follow the particular prophets and those whom God spoke through because Jesus is our prophet. But when Jesus came, he changed everything. There are no more kings after Jesus. He's the king of kings. There are no more priests after Jesus. He is the great high priest. There are no prophets like the prophets of old anymore because Jesus is the apostle and prophet of our faith. But in Jesus and by faith in his name, we receive the spirit that was on each of them. And we don't receive it in part. We receive it because of Christ without measure. Amen. Now think about this for a minute. When you read the Old Testament, you will see this phrase, and the spirit of the Lord came upon 
a certain person for a certain amount of time. Do you know that? You read that? We saw it in 2 Chronicles. I could go back and show you, but I don't have time. But the promise of God in Joel was that it shall come to pass afterward that I, listen, will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. Jesus in his earthly ministry said, it is to your advantage that I go because if I go, I will send another helper and this helper and and being filled by this Holy Spirit, you will do greater things than I have done. And you look back and you go, how could we do greater things than we have done? Oh, because there's going to be a Holy Spirit in every single one of you. There's one Jesus on the planet at one time, but every follower of Jesus who approaches him with the virtue of courage, that faith that fixes the eyes on what God has said and what God has done and who God is and walks in a holy boldness is now an, an outlet and, a, and an instrument in the hands of Almighty God. Do you realize this? Listen, many of us are living under the potential that God has given us, not, not, not by your genetics. Listen, I know, I know a lot of you grew up with someone talking about your potential, looking at you and saying, you're, you have this gift or that ability, or you're this smart, or you're this clever, or you're this hardworking, and talking about your human, I'm not talking about your human potential. I'm talking about your spirit-filled capacity as a follower of Jesus that is supernatural and profound, and it rests on every single person who puts their faith in Jesus without fail. Do you know that? If you have a concept in your mind that there is somehow some different power that's on me as a preacher than on you, you are wrong. You are wrong. If you have in your mind that there are, there are a leader class of humans and then there's the regular serfs and you are one of them, you are wrong. And what God is calling you to in this moment in time is to put on the virtue of courage and not just human courage, not just a willingness to face adversity in your face of your fear, but a supernatural courage that believes God for what he has said and acts in it despite the fact that you have not seen it for yourself. You see, throughout the scriptures, God has delivered his people and there's every generation's been able to look back to see what God had done in the past. The Israelites at the Red Sea knew that God had judged the whole world with a global flood. And so he has power over the earth and over the waters and he could part the sea if he wanted to, but he hadn't done it for them yet, had he? But what did they do? They took that first step, that staff went in the water and the Red Sea parted and they walked through. Listen, those who entered the conquest under Joshua knew that God had separated the Red Sea for their parents to pass. But when they stood at the Jordan River, he hadn't done it for them yet. Every generation requires you to put your faith in what God has said and what God has done, even though it hasn't happened for you yet. Which means if you are activating courage, if you are walking in faith, then you will be believing God and doing something you've never done before and you have not seen it fulfilled yet. That's what faith feels like. And if you haven't felt that in a while, it's time to fix your eyes. I'm going to wrap up right here. Hebrews 1, or Hebrews 12, 1. This is what God is calling you to. He's calling you to trust him, to believe him. And this is the essence of faith. We look to these stories to stir our faith, but ultimately our faith has to move us forward. 
and faith fixes our eyes, Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so tightly and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Somebody say, my race. It's not, I, can't, I can't walk in your shoes. I can't fulfill your call. I can't minister to your people. This is your race. You have a race. You have a race. My race. You got to run your race. And how do we do this? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, he is the fullness of God incarnate. He is the God-man, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. He is a human. He walked this earth, but he is in every way equal with and the expression of God of creation, the covenant-making God of the Old Testament. And he has, he has defeated every enemy of humanity. He has, he has crushed the head of that ancient serpent. He has defeated death, and there is life to be found in no other name than the name of Jesus. I don't care what you've read, what you've heard, and what Wikipedia says. There's one rightful king of the universe, and his name is Jesus. He's the only one that gives you hope beyond death and purpose in this life. He's the only one who's worth every day waking up in full allegiance and full devotion, yielding your entirety to every single day. And he proved his love for you when he died in your place. No other king has ever done that. But he did it, and he did it for you. And so you got to put your eyes on him every day every day. Not the day you believed in him and now it's on you. No, every day. And especially when you're facing impossible circumstances, when you're afraid, when you need courage, you got to fix your eyes on Jesus. My Jesus went to the cross and he came out on the third day victorious. And I'm going to trust God. And no matter how dark this valley is, I know that I'm going to come out on the other side. And so faith fixes our eyes. Faith, faith fuels our boldness. Second Chronicles 2014 says, the spirit of the Lord came on Jahaziel and the spirit of the Lord is going to come on you. Jesus promised in Acts 1.8 that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. God's got a global plan, a global kingdom, and every one of us is a part of it. There is a geographic Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And right now we are geographically in the ends of the earth. Praise him. Did you guys know the reason we're here today is because all of this is true? Do you know that? This is true, and that's why this is happening, and this is why you are here. So God, God wants to pour out his spirit on every single one of you, just like Joel said. And that faith should fuel your boldness. And so if you find yourself being timid or afraid or unwilling, ask God, seek the Lord, encourage, say to God, you are worth talking about. You are worth sharing about. And if I have timidity, give me your spirit of boldness, yes. a spirit of boldness. Listen, some of you, some of you are like nervous about the conversation to invite someone to church on Easter. You're like, dear, dear Holy Spirit, give me boldness. I just want to put it on the urinal. Listen, here's the kind of boldness that God wants you to have. Peter and John heading to prayer at the third hour, and they walk past a man. Doesn't say anything about the activity of the Holy Spirit, except that both Peter and John looked at this guy who's lame from birth and expecting to get some money from them. And both of them looked at him. And I, I have this feeling 
that they were experiencing what Jesus often experienced, that they could sense that God was at work right here with this guy. There's something going on right there. Found a spiritual hotspot right here. And this guy says, can you give me alms? And what do they say? Peter says, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Christ Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. That takes a little boldness, does it not? I am not an orthopedic surgeon. I'm a fisherman from Galilee, but I know the Messiah, Jesus, who has power over creation and the ability to heal every disease. And so get up. That took boldness. And then they got an audience with the authorities because of that little stunt. And they were threatened. Verse eight, Peter said, filled with the spirit, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this, has, this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, that's bold, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And you know what Luke tells us in Acts 4.13? It says, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, just like all of us, they were astonished. And they recognized they had been with Jesus. They threaten them further and tell them, okay, we can't arrest you, but stop talking about Jesus. And in verse 19, Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And then you know what they pray for? Boldness more boldness and more boldness and more boldness because that faith fuels boldness. Listen, courage leads to action. Action brings opposition and opposition brings fear. It's what you do in that moment of fear is where your faith hits the road. And when you take that fear and you combine it with this virtue of courage and you seek the faith face of God, and then you move believing in what he has said, it will lead to more action. This is where your faith has to get real. But that action always ends in victory. And some of you are here today and you are afraid of your calling. You're actually afraid of receiving this gift of salvation because it means you're going to have to give up something. It means that you are not going to be the boss anymore. It means Jesus is. It means that your plans have to give way to his plans. And that's scary to you. And I'm just here to tell you that there is nothing more terrifying than trying to be God for yourself. Somebody say amen. And especially if you're here and you're young and you haven't learned the hard way, listen, you're a great person. You're a terrible Jesus. There's nothing smarter that you can do right now. There's nothing more beautiful than you can do right now than to yield your heart to Jesus and trust him. He knows better than you. He made you. He made you and he knows what he made you for. He's got good things in store for you. He's got a purpose and a plan. You're gonna face some obstacles and some opposition, yes, but you are gonna experience his deliverance and his power. And by faith, you are gonna fulfill your calling. So don't you be afraid of that calling. Don't you be afraid to yield yourself entirely. And then some of us, we've accepted the calling, but we're running into the obstacle of opposition again. 
Maybe we're second guessing ourselves and we're looking at the opposition and saying, if this is against me, then maybe I've gone off. Maybe I've done the wrong thing. Maybe God's not for me. Maybe, maybe this is on, my, on me. Maybe I created this. And listen, I'm here to tell you, opposition is evidence that you are with God. It does not mean when you follow God that there will be no opposition. It means there will be opposition. Why? God wants to test your faith and God wants to show up and show off. And so you get an opportunity to trust in him and take courage. Lastly, and this is where, this is where it gets real because you got to take that step. It's your faith that's going to fulfill your purpose. There's actually really nothing scarier to me than wasting my life doing something less than what God's called me to do. There's no amount of security, retirement. There's no amount of, there's no amount of cruises or, or, or second homes. There's no amount of success that would ever stand in the scales between what God put me on this planet to accomplish and what's available to me with the resources he's entrusted me with. And I'm here to tell you, God wants you to go all in. And it's the only way to go. It's the only way to actually walk in faith. Do you realize that? There is no, there's no quasi-faith. There's no sort of faith. There's no little faith. It's everything. It's all or nothing. And when you walk in faith with courage, faith fulfills your purpose. Now, this is my last text, and we're going to wrap up. Revelation 12, 7 to 12. This is a glimpse into the heavens and the historical past of God's enemy, the devil. It says, now war arose in heaven. Michael, the archangel, and his angels fighting against the dragon, that is Satan. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. These are the demons. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb. That's what God did for you. And by the word of their testimony, that's your faith in him. Why? For they loved not their lives, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. Listen, the bowels of hell shake when the people of God have a holy boldness. When we take God as his word and we follow in obedience, no matter how scared we feel, when we walk in the courage of faith. And so I'm challenging you every day. You got to let your faith fix your eyes on Jesus. That's the center point. That's the hot spot. That's where you will walk in who God's called you to be. You got to let your faith fuel your boldness to new levels. You got to be constantly pushing yourself to walk in who God made you to be and to fulfill your purpose. I'm going to do the best I can, but I can't be that for all of us. Somebody say amen. Every one of us has got to get in the game and we got to go in so hard and so committed and so furious that we are living life not to the point of death, but right through death's door and into eternity. Listen, there is not a force on this planet that can stop a people like that. And this is who God's invited you to be.
Why? Not because of how great you are, <laughs> but because of how great he is. Amen? I want to pray for you, and I want to pray for two distinct groups of people. The first are you who have not yielded your life in its entirety to the Lord Jesus. You may believe in him and some true things about him, but you have never said, Jesus, I give you my life. I'm returning from leading my life on my own in all of the darkness and sin that that has led me to. I'm bringing that mess to you to be forgiven, and I'm giving you my entire life completely right now, no looking back. And if that's you, and, and you're feeling that pounding in your chest, that this is your moment, do not let this moment pass by. And so I'm gonna invite you to take a step of boldness. And if that's you, I want you to raise your hand in three, two, one. You ready? Ready? I'm giving you three seconds to, to be ready. You ready? Three, two, one. Praise God. Okay, you can put your hands down. I'm talking to the rest of you. You've already made this decision before. You've put your faith in Jesus and you have been living very timid and very small. And you know there's more for you, but you're holding on and you're holding back. And God is calling you to step into a holy boldness. And it's a boldness that comes with faith, but he's the one to deliver, to restore, to redeem, to secure, to establish, and to redeem, amen? And so you're just saying, okay, God, I'm really gonna trust you for who you really are. And I'm gonna start today. I'm gonna fix my eyes on Jesus. I'm gonna receive your Holy Spirit. I'm gonna be filled with boldness and I'm gonna go all in. And if that's you, I'm giving you three seconds to raise your hand. Are you ready? Three, two, one. Let me see those hands. All right, whoa, oh boy. Buckle up, Volusia County. <laughs> now I'm gonna ask all of you who raised your hand to either one of those things to put your hands out like this. Father in heaven, Lord, you see every heart. Your word tells us that with the heart, one believes and is justified. With the mouth, one confesses and is saved. God, and right now, I pray on behalf of every person in this room who has humbled themselves and put their faith in Jesus. Lord, I pray for those who have put their faith in Jesus for the very first time to be fully dedicated to him. God, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would wash over them in your cleansing power to forgive their sins. And so write this message on their hearts. You are mine. And right now, God, I pray for every single person who is holding back in any way, shape, or form and has said, I wanna go all in. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you baptize with fire and with power and with boldness? And would you begin to pour out new gifts and new strengths for your purpose in each of their lives to fulfill your purpose in this age? And would you light this city on fire with the truth of Jesus? And it's in your mighty name we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. Now you're not done. I'm gonna let you go. I know we're over. Listen, if you made a decision to follow Jesus for the first time, you need to be baptized in water for the forgiveness of your sins. And I want you to come up here and I want you to give me your name and I'm gonna put you, I'm gonna write your name down and I'm going to reach out to you and I'm gonna talk you through and walk you through the next st stage, which is baptism. And if you are here and you ask the Holy Spirit to fill you, get up tomorrow morning and every moment and you start asking and talking to the Holy Spirit in a nonstop way and watch for those hot spots because you will start to see them and then walk in boldness and do whatever God tells you to. Amen? Agreed? Okay. And then you better tell me your stories. You better tell me what happens because God's going to start to use you in ways you've never seen. God, we thank you and we praise you. Yours is the glory.
and the majesty for all the heavens is yours. Have your way in our lives, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. All right.